Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, previewing Nashtag 2021. This conversation includes two particularly interesting sidebars from our recording session. In the first sidebar, Stephen discusses the value he gets from Nashtag, and Louise Campbell inquires about the role of patients and advocates in the proceedings. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and this week's guest, hepatology researcher and clinician Ian Rowe, as they preview next month's NASH Tag 2021 meeting from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. It's encouraging to see positive data coming out, not just on non-invasive tests, but on liver biopsy data. But I, I also think what this meeting gives us an opportunity to do is really begin to harmonize our thoughts on the way forward. Can we gain consensus around how artificial intelligence should be incorporated? Can we gain consensus around how paired liver biopsies should be read by pathologists based on the FDA guidance that recently came out that said, we're not beholden to any one way of doing it. We're willing to listen to novel ways of, of interpreting histopathology where we can minimize variability, minimize intra-observer variability, minimize placebo response rates. And so I think that's where I've seen NASHTAG be really beneficial is being able to harmonize thoughts on lots of different topics. And to your point, there's a lot of positive data that's being presented. So what does the future look like relative to all of that? You know, do we have one size fits all? What drugs do we begin to co-formulate and study together? Do we do induction therapy followed by maintenance therapy? All of these discussions will be had, whether they're going to be had in public forum or they'll be had in sidebar conversations at the meeting. Rest assured, they will be had. And, and I think this is where, you know, we can all read the literature, but when you're siloed and you're stovepiped in a Zoom meeting, you're limited in your ability to think outside the box. And I know in my own career, some of the best best thoughts I've had were thoughts that, that were triggered by a sidebar conversation with one of my colleagues over a soda, a beer, you name it, over dinner. And that triggered a thought process and a discussion that subsequently ensued that gave me something to think about when I came home. And, and I applied that in the next study that I did or in the next review that I wrote or uh, in the way that I presented things. And I think that's really what happens at a meeting like this. You take all the data and you synthesize it, you boil it down and you walk away with, okay, there's the what, we talk about the data, then there's so what, we debate it and throw it back and forth and chew on it collectively, and then there's the now what, what are we walking away from and doing as we leave the meeting? And I think that what, so what, now what mentality is really what's made NASHTAG a success. Question, Stephen, the many debates, the beyond success stories, so why do many try fail. I appreciate that NASHTAG is all about the science, but the patient is beyond science and the patient or the subject is a massive confounder 
in why clinical trials fail. But there's no person, there's no subject who's lived a trial life talking about what they found difficult, what they found hard, what they changed that was just something that could change an outcome. And we know you don't have to change a lot. You only have to change the quality of your food for some of these subjects to significantly change internal structure. And I think, will that be looked at? Because what I'm very used to in the medical world is when scientists get together and are very science orientated, sometimes we lose the humanistic side, the bit that we can't legislate for because we like to put things in boxes. Is there an opportunity within that forum that's going to be presented from the opposite side of why trials fail patients? That's a great comment and a great observation, Louise. We have historically had patient advocacy groups represented at NASHTAG, not necessarily on the podium, but in the audience. And we've always encouraged interactive open mic dialogue with the advocates, the patient advocates that are there. So I don't know exactly. I haven't seen Dr. Ratsu's lecture on exactly what he's tackling and his title, Specific Challenges and Opportunities for NASH Trials. But I suspect that will come up. And and if not, maybe virtually you can raise your hand and ask that question, because I think it's an incredibly important one to include. In the second sidebar, a question from Stephen to Louise inspires a conversation about what demand for the COVID-19 vaccine might teach us about motivating NASH and NAFL patients to lose weight and keep it off, while our guest, Dr. Ian Rowe, and I offer our own thoughts. As diagnostics and disease insights improve in the absence of approved clinical agents in the market, these kinds of behavioral questions will become increasingly key to treating patients. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Louise, here's a side here's a side thought I had, and it, it involves a question to you. You think about COVID. If I told you, look, you're not going to get COVID if you lose 10% of your body weight. You won't have it. Guaranteed. 99% probability you won't get COVID. Do you think that there would be a much bigger push by patients to lose 10% of their body weight? And the reason I ask that is because there's been so much press, so much in your face about COVID. Everybody knows about COVID. They know how deadly it can be. They know there's a vaccine. People are lining up like crazy to get the vaccine. We're not having to force people to go get the vaccine. I get it. There's anti-vaxxers out there, but there's a whole lot of people just in my own city. We run out as quick as we get it for vaccinations. Imagine if the vaccine is weight loss and Think about NASH. Most people don't know about NASH. They still don't know about NASH. They don't know the risk of NASH. They don't know that patients can decompensate and actually die from their liver disease. And if they knew they could make a huge impact on their life by just changing their lifestyle, I think more people would actually do that. Now, granted, the data is pretty clear. Getting people to lose 10% of their weight and keep it off is a unique challenge and one that not many people can do. But I just wonder... Back to the question, if the cure for COVID was 10% weight loss, how many people would be trying to achieve that on a daily basis? I think people are trying. Obviously, you know, our prime minister had COVID and I'm sure Ian will confirm any of the data that I get wrong, but he typifies in his body image, somebody who probably has fatty liver disease, if I had to put my cards on the table on that and guess. But we had a, a weight loss and obesity campaign. Six million people downloaded the NHS app the last time I looked to use 
for weight loss. We get multiple stories on the news of people who were morbidly obese with BMIs over 40 and 35 who've taken up running, who've lost the weight, who've done it because they knew that they were really severe risk. What we didn't mention was the elephant in the room is you, yes, you're losing body weight, but in 99% of those people, you are going to lose. It's the liver fat. It's the pancreatic fat in your diabetic population that changes that outcome most significantly. But I genuinely think that we are so stigmatized, both within healthcare, in other professions that don't look at liver disease as their primary disease, to mention liver disease because people get offended by being, oh, I can't have liver disease, I don't drink, or I don't use drugs. So we, by not having those conversations, we continue to stigmatize an organ that is key to everything we do. I have a friend who I do have fibroscanned who had relative, for his size, he had relatively low liver fat. Now he is in hospital currently with COVID, but didn't get ventilated, went to CPAP for 24 hours and came back knowing his internal liver fat would have guessed that that would have been the outcome with him. But those are just the odd cases. But I totally agree with you. If we started to have those discussions about what organs are involved, you would then start to see the heart websites for patient advocacy groups mentioning to their heart patients that they might have a liver problem. And particularly the diabetes sites to say to their patient forum that have you been checked for liver disease? Those aren't conversations that they're having on their websites looking after their patient group. And why? Because the liver remains stigmatized within all of the other areas. It's probably one of the biggest reasons it's not been classified as a non-communicable disease, despite fueling most of the big non-communicable disease problems. So people do want to do it. And if you can measure it with something like Fibroscan to say that you're making that improvement and you can do it three monthly, people do stay motivated, but they don't know how much improvement they've made. That's an important factor. We do have the technology and I know the science is all about we want a, a fiber scan of 8.5 and we want a cap of above 270, 280, 300, preferably for clinical trials. But I actually don't want people to be clinical trial patients. I don't want them to have enough liver fat to cause a problem. So when I look at fiber scan as a wellness tool, it is keeping people in the lower thresholds, irrespective of their overlap. If they don't get to 300, they're less likely to have a problem. So if you can keep them motivated to keep that liver fat lower, and I don't think there's simple steatosis. We'd think that steatosis does cause problems, even if it doesn't cause fibrosis. So for me, it's keeping people out of the threshold in the long term, or the majority of people out of the threshold. We will always have those who get to those thresholds. But the numbers at the moment are massive. 14.6 million people in the UK have fatty liver disease. We know that you guys estimate 100 million in America. And I do think a lot of people would be motivated if they could see their internal change. It's not what we look like on the outside. It's what we look like on the inside <laughs> that in COVID really matters. So your aunt, my long answer to that is, yes, I do think if we were overt in discussing the internal liver weight loss, people would be well more motivated and be able to see it. And you can see that liver loss in somebody on a fiber scan in the cap. A couple thoughts about that. First of all, you couldn't have teed up next week's episode a lot better if you tried. 
because this is exactly what we're going to be talking about next week, number one. Number two, to go back to Stephen's question, Stephen, I think the answer is complicated by the behavioral issues around weight loss, which is, I think if people had that information, uh, the percentage that would want to lose the weight would be vast. And without better psychosocial support than we give them right now, even if they had fiber scans, many would succeed, many would fail. The problem is once you know that you've got a fatty liver inside you, which is like a ticking time bomb, um, failure has more severe emotional consequences to it. So I think your question is great. I think if we start teaching people those things and then provide them with better psychosocial support than we've done to date, we really can have tremendous impact on that and broad impact on that. In the absence, I think we go to where we are, which is people lose weight, but most of them can't keep it off because it, ultimately it's not about um, having a different goal. It's about, see, the way we approach this is the goal is to lose 10% of, the, of your body fat. The, the way we should be approaching it is I am a disciplined person who, who am careful about what I eat because of what that says about my life. And if I tell myself that's the person I am, then I will execute the behavior. And if I execute the behavior, I lose the weight. And that, that's how it stays off. But we don't do that right now. And we would need to be able to support that kind of thinking and that kind of change in habit to get to where we want. I guess I just want to circle back in my own practice. If if we assume COVID is taken seriously by every patient that I encounter, and I tell them there's a vaccine ready for them, you should go get it. I think a lot of them would go get the vaccine. And I think that's predicated on the fact that they know how severe COVID can be, that it's killed half a million Americans, more than World War One, World War II, and Vietnam combined. But what we don't tell them is, how many people died from NASH-related complications, which I can guarantee you is more than a half a million people, right? We, we don't have that type of conversation. And patients don't know that data. They know fatty liver. They, they don't know fatty liver, but let's say they did know fatty liver. Our primary care frontline docs, unfortunately, aren't armed with data to show them or have the time to sit down with the patients and explain the potential seriousness of the consequences that can come with having fatty liver. Forget fatty liver alone. The number one killer is cardiovascular disease, right? So again, my point is, I personally think if there was disease awareness out there for our patients with fatty liver, to the same degree that there's disease awareness about COVID and the quote unquote cure is weight loss rather than a vaccine, I think more people would do exactly what Louise said. They would download that app and they would get after it more. They may not be successful completely, but heck, 5% is better than no percent. If you look at the data presented by um, from the NHANES data, the vast majority majority of NASH patients don't do any exercise. So at least maybe beginning to do something, we might see a completely different outcome relative to long-term patient benefit. I am just going to finish on one thing on what Stephen said there, because I think he made a very, very good point in vaccination. The people who are certainly in the UK, more resistant to vaccinations are those ethnic populations that actually are at highest risk of fatty liver disease, Asian population, our Bangladesh population, um, our Arabic population. And no matter whether or not it's due to suspicion. There is no suspicion with if we ask you to lose weight. If you don't want to take the vaccine, lose weight. That can protect you. So there is a, a, a good argument to exactly what you're saying, because there are the anti-vaxxers. But actually, we're, we're just telling you to lose weight. If you don't want to have a vaccine, lose weight. It won't protect you from getting COVID, but it may well protect you from dying. So that was an excellent point you made. And I think this has been a fascinating little discussion about what drives 
behaviour change and the sort of perceived risk of various illnesses and that sort of the the publicity and sort of danger sense around COVID is a you know is a potential driver and it always reminds me of the story about the commonest time to buy earthquake insurance is just after an earthquake and if we don't use information at the right time the impact of what you say to the patient is likely to be lessened and it comes back to understanding what is going to have the greatest impact for behavior change and whether that relates to overall risk of death whether it relates to covid whether it relates to liver risk or whether it relates to cardiovascular risk i think we need to know the answer to those questions so that we can best focus on what we say to patients when and how we say it that's an excellent point a long time ago susan sontag wrote about the um, metaphors around cancer and why cancer was feared more than diseases that killed more people because there are the metaphors around dying of cancer that are just uglier and covid is now that covid is the hand of god that comes out of the sky and all of a sudden you're dead so that metaphorically that's really powerful and if you believe that you could get a shield by losing 10 your body weight, that would be pretty compelling for people who thought they could get it done. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email question at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two more conversations from this episode, and we will release our next full episode on Wednesday, March 3rd. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, stay warm, and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.